It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. Welcome to Crazy and the King. Today, we have part two of Torin and I's interview with author, professor, and kick-ass white dude, Dr. Robert Jensen. If you haven't heard part one, you can go to crazyintheking.com, and I'll also leave a link to the pod in the show notes. Enjoy. Let me go back to the question of family, if you don't mind, uh, because I, th- I think you're right. Um, yeah. Family is always a struggle, uh, but people have different relationships to family. And sometimes um, the long-term strategy of trying to hang in there and and quietly, uh, or not quietly, but um, carefully challenge people rather than simply coming out both barrels, you know, to critique people. Sometimes that's a very good strategy. Other times uh, we have to recognize the limitations of situations we're in and not be afraid to be harsh. And so I'm going to talk very personally. Uh, my father is an unreconstructed racist, and uh, I had no expectation that he was going to change his point of view. Uh, that was an accurate, I think, assessment. And I told him at one point, I said, I don't think you're ever going to change, and I don't really care if you change. I said, but if you ever say things in front of your grandson, my, my son, I said, if you ever say things in front of your grandson that you said in front of me when I was growing up, it's the last you'll see of your grandson. I will never bring your grandson home to see you again if you behave that way. And and that was a harsh thing to say. And maybe it wasn't loving. Maybe there are a lot of ways I could be critiqued for it. But in that case, I actually think it was the right approach. Uh, we're not going to persuade everybody in this world that our point of view is the appropriate one. And sometimes you mark boundaries to change behavior. And that's an important thing. There's two different, there's different, there is a difference between changing people's hearts and changing behavior. And I think first and foremost, we want to change hearts. But when we can't do that, changing behavior is an important fallback position. It's better that there is less racist behavior in the world than more racist behavior, even if some of the people who are changing their behavior don't really believe it. So that's just a a footnote about how complex it is and how there is never, or at least there is rarely, a right or wrong answer. You make, you kind of make it up as you go along, hoping you're judging situations correctly. And I think that's akin to parenting, period, right? When I hear that story, I think about my son and sure. the protections I've had to put around him, not dissimilar to what you're talking about. And, you know, as a parent, you have to put that re- or that that health before, yeah. you know, the health yeah. of your relationship with another person. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, thank you for you sharing know, that. You were talking about identity politics, which is a term that is so loaded. Some people use it to describe um, simply an approach to recognizing that everyone's social location is the product of a lot of different aspects of our identity. In my case, I'm white, I'm male, uh, I, I live comfortably in the middle class with professional credentials and, and higher education. You know, I'm a citizen of the United States in a world dominated by the United States. I, I use this joke often, and it's really not a joke. I, I say if I had been born good looking, I would have had it all. Uh, so we all are the product of our identities in that sense. But there's also a way in which identity politics is used to try to trivialize 
the concerns about this. Now, the problem is that if you, let's say, are on a typical college campus, I'll just use the one I'm most familiar with, which is, of course, my own, the University of Texas at Austin. There are people trying to work on issues around race, gender, class, these sorts of things, who sometimes go forward in ways that are counterproductive. Let me give you an example. I ran into lots of undergraduate students, typically white students, who had been exposed to this kind of critique, took it seriously, tried to work it into their own lives, but then gave in to the the temptation to be morally superior. And I've been in classrooms where they're typic they typically are white students who want to demonstrate that they're one of the cool kids, essentially, that they have, they get it. They have internalized this critique and therefore they police other students, mostly other white students. Well, you could say, well, that's good. You know, white kids should be policing each other. But if it's a policing that doesn't advance the cause, then it can be counterproductive. So let me just give you an example. Uh, if a white kid who has been exposed to a lot of this kind of literature and this kind of teaching and has really given it thought, jumps on a white kid who is very new to the idea and tries to shame that kid for using the wrong term or you know not being you know up on the latest theory, well, that can have really negative consequences. The white kid who is new to it all might think, well, God, I'm just trying to figure this out and and the minute I open my mouth, somebody jumps on me. Other white kids in the class can look in, at that example and say, wow, if you open your mouth and say the wrong thing, you can really get slammed and that might not be the best thing to do. And so it can inhibit conversation. Now, again, I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that white students, white people, that we shouldn't hold each other accountable when we engage in racist behavior or say something that's racist. I'm, I'm not saying let everybody off the hook. I'm saying that we have to realize that everybody comes into this work in their own way, you know, with their own background, and not everybody is at the same place. And we have to recognize that. So there's a real problem in finding, you know, the sweet spot there. Yeah, And that's not just true today on campuses. It's always true. But it is something I think we have to wrestle with. I do believe we should wrestle with it. And I also believe that you are right when you say it's not just on campuses. It is most certainly inside of corporate quarters. It is yeah. inside of community organizations. It is inside of uh, groups that are trying to do social impact, make social impact. And that is part and parcel why we have that diversity fatigue on both sides of the equation. Those that are people that are black and brown, as well as uh, those that that have a bit less melanin, if you will. And and I really want to to do the best that I can in this conversation. I'm going to let you use the word white. I'm going to use the phrase less melanin because we okay. all agree. We definitely agree that that this whole color scheme is really nothing more than some man made system, if you will. But but I love how you have illustrated those that have been ambitious and they they almost uh, appear to be zealots in their their desire to 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 distance themselves from those folks and and I don't want to be one of those folks and I'm not one of those folks you're absolutely right in that we we are all searching for that sweet spot and Robert what I would what I would offer up is that that sweet spot is right here today that sweet spot is how do we have this conversation at 37 minutes and 38 seconds? How do we have that with 5,000 people? How do we have yeah. that with 15,000 people? No matter how you feel, no matter where you are in the equation, 
how is it that you can plug into such and then unplug from such knowing that it exists and that I have to do something different. I love how you painted that picture. And that is the mission that Julie and I are on. How do we get 500,000 people listening and dialed in and then saying to themselves, we have to do something different in our places of work? You know, it's always easy to look back on one's history and find the places one was stupid in the past. (laughs) I mean, I can tell you things I did when I was a teenager in my 20s or when I first started teaching that were really stupid. And, And there's a kind of ease with that looking historically. Just like collectively, the, the culture is, you know, a little more willing to talk about racism in the you know 19th century than it is in the 21st. And so let me just, you know, you, there was a kind of implicit challenge torn in what you said about being honest. So let me, let me just tell you something honestly that I still struggle with. I'm, you know, I'm 60 years old. I was born in 1958 in Fargo, North Dakota, or in, in North Dakota. And that's not an excuse. It's just a reminder of who I am. And I grew up assuming that people in positions of power and authority were going to be white. Now, I know that's not true. And I have, you know, years of experience that should help me understand why that's not true. But there are still times when I will see, let's say, a, a, a black face in a certain position and and notice it and wonder about that person's uh, ability. Uh, you know, if, if there are certain things that are kind of reflexive like that, and I can catch myself fairly quickly and recognize the the white supremacist ideology that's dripping off of that reaction. But the fact is, I still have those reactions. And I, I think I have those reactions because I was socialized to have them for my entire life. And it isn't an excuse like, oh, I can't be held accountable. It's a recognition that if I don't say that out loud, if I try to lie to myself, then I'm not going to catch myself. I'm going to let those things pass. And so I think there's a kind of honesty that's really hard. And it's hard because it, re- it reminds us of what a painful world we live in. And, and I think we have to talk about that. Now, one more thing I want to say, the pain of living in that world that is framed by white supremacy is not equal for everyone. And that's the other thing to always remember. I, I just started to kind of clench up a tear up a little bit at, at what I was saying, because it reminds me I don't like the world I live in. But to to assume that I even have the right to be overly emotional about this uh, assumes that we're all kind of in it together. And, you know, everybody has a hard time. And I really want to mark the problem of what, what we often call false equivalency, that the experience of being black and being white in white supremacist America is anything similar. Yes, it's often difficult for me walking through this world and realizing my own shortcomings and realizing the pain of the world, but that is nothing like walking through the world as a black person. And and so we both have to, I think, recognize the emotion of all of this, but not engage in any false equivalency where I would say, Torn, well, you know, it's hard for us in this world too. That would be absurd. Yet I also have to recognize the emotional experience I go through trying to struggle with all of this crazy white supremacist stuff. I don't know if that makes sense, but it seemed important to say. It makes all, it makes all the sense in the world. And so you have so many individuals now who want to equate, let's, let's just use the LGBTQ movement, and they want to juxtapose that with the struggles that we went through in the civil rights era. I've even had some in the LGBTQ community wish to take their struggle back to and mirror it over what we went through in Jim Crow and even slavery. And what I try to do is I try to give them, 
you know, a a sort of a very quick run through history that I am not minimizing the struggle that you face today in 2019 or perhaps that you faced in the uh, uh, 1990s or maybe 1980 or 70 when you could not necessarily come out. But I cannot allow you in all honesty, I can't allow you to just walk away feeling as if your struggle or what you are going through is in any way the same as what black uh, men and women and their children have had to go through. We have articles right now. I can go to my computer and pull articles right now where they are talking about little black girls and boys, how they are seen as either adults and or people who can who can endure more pain, more pain. So we see a black child who is five, six, seven, and the the, the let's just say the, the the educator in their school, they see them when they stub their toe or they run up against a wall or scrape their knee. Oh, you can handle it. You're strong. You're tough. You can you can you can handle that. But then for the the child with less melanin, you know they want to pacify them and treat them as a child. And there's nothing wrong with treating them as a child, there's certainly something wrong with seeing a five-year-old as someone older and or able to endure more pain. I feel you, Robert, 1000%. You have the right to tear up. It is. It shows the, the humanity in who you are and the authenticity in your, your having this conversation with Julie and I. And I so appreciate your distinguishing between the fact that it's not the same as the walk, the life of a black and brown individual. Yeah. And, you know, uh, sometimes people warn us against getting into the oppression Olympics where we try to rank somehow human suffering. Uh, so, you know, I'm talking uh, over the Internet, uh, not face to face with a white woman and a black man. So if I were asked uh, whose experience is more difficult uh, a white woman who lives as a woman with the recognition of the constant threat of sexual violence in the world, or a black man who as a black person lives with the constant threat of white supremacy in the world and how it can uh, literally be deadly. Now, I mean, there's no point in trying to rank those. Um, you know, the, the gay lesbian experience uh, involves incredible suffering. Uh, as someone who's currently married to a woman, but has lived part of my life as a gay man, and I guess I'm bisexual, sometimes I just feel confused. I remember the incredible psychological stress and pain of knowing I was different than other boys, or at least imagining I was different, uh, being terrified of that, being terrified of being beaten up if I ever said anything about what I was struggling with. How does that rank against uh, the current struggle of uh, Latino folks who live in Texas on the border and are constantly subject to harassment from law enforcement in this, you know, era of uh, an almost psychotic fear of immigrants. Well, there's no point in trying to rank all of this. There's no point in assuming that they all come from the same struggle or can be dealt with in the same way. The point is that humans have found an incredible number of ways of ranking each other and then giving some people ranked on top unearned wealth, power, and privilege. And we need to struggle against them all without falsely equating any of them. And so where does that leave us? It leaves us all trying to understand each other and in the end, all accountable for 
the ways that we participate in the oppression of others. And again, for me as a white guy, you know, with a good job from the United States, it's mostly for me about recognizing how through no, you know, uh, as a result of no action on my own part, I ended up on top of the heat and I'm accountable for that. And that's what I always try to remember. So one one thing that I hear in this conversation is it's it's the power right? So it's it's not the difference. It's not the oppression. It's not the struggle. It is the power structure. And when I think about power structure, I think probably as much about socioeconomic status as I do about race or disability or gender. Where kind of where does your where does your thinking fit in how impactful socioeconomic differences are between the between differences mm-hmm. or just between us as as two groups so the the not in power mm-hmm. and the in power well i mean there are lots of ways that people's identity as we were talking about earlier affect life outcomes the chances you have in this world i tend to, it, i tend to think about four categories that i think we can't avoid the question of race in a white supremacist world the question of uh, sex gender in a patriarchal world the question of socioeconomic class in a capitalist world and the realities of of nation in a world where the distribution of wealth and power across the globe is quite uneven right? and so all of those are relevant all of those will you know to use a term that's very popular these days intersect in determining one's chances in the world and all of them are the result of disparities in power uh, white over non-white male over female uh, wealthy over poor and working class and first world, especially in this context, the United States over what we sometimes call the global South, the third world, the developing world, the world that was, you know, the, the, the worst affected by European colonialism. Okay. Well, all of those things are important. And at any given moment, one might be more salient, we would say than another, uh, and there's no algorithm to run to work it all out. We just have to be conscious of them all and how complex the world is because all of those are functioning. Uh, and beyond that, you know, it would be nice if we, if we had formulas to work it all out, I suppose. Uh, let, let's just take the <laughs> question that is very much on the minds of, you know, political analysts, the the status of the sometimes mythical white working class. Uh, I, I'd recommend another book, uh, I, th- I think that deals with this very well by a woman named Sarah Smarsh. And the book is called Heartland. And she comes from the white working class, rural poor in Kansas. And she talks about what it means to grow up in those communities where access to education is limited, where the work is low paid and often very physically demanding. Uh, and for many people, there's a feeling of, of no way out. Now, she was the daughter of a teenage mother who was herself the daughter of a teenage mother. And Sarah's story takes a different direction. She ends up getting a scholarship, going to college and changing that trajectory. But she writes really um, in really compelling fashion about that history. But she also doesn't pretend that the white working class is also not part of a white supremacist society. And so she talks about the the relevance of, of race in that white supremacist society. 
Uh, and she talks a lot about gender. And so it's a good example, I think, of a book that practices that attempt to think intersectionally, uh, dealing with a difficult subject of growing up the way she did, uh, but not ignoring all of the other aspects of the world that are relevant as well. So I just wanted to uh, just jump in real quick. Uh, the both of you mentioned the power. Julie, you said it. And then, Robert, you picked up on it. And for that individual, that naysayer that is listening, for that individual listening who perhaps has a friend, a relative who is uh, a naysayer who might profess that black people, brown people can also be racist. Um, I just want to kind of define when 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 I hear the word power, I think about, you know, legitimate and legal access to resources, to systems and to institutions. And so I just really want to make sure that people are thinking about it from that standpoint. When we talk power, you know, as a black man, I may not be able or I may be able to prevent you from securing this one job. But yeah. from a widespread standpoint, you're not going to find a number of Torin Ellis's around the country or the globe that are preventing swaths of people from a job. And so power is something that really is around that legitimate and legal access to resources, to systems, as well as institutions. Wanted to throw that in. Yeah. Torin, let me ask you a question. Why are you so angry? Oh, okay, that was a joke. Yeah, I, 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 I know. I, I, I just wanted to make a joke. No, no, let me, let me <laughs> tell you. No, 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 no. Let me tell you. And I knew the moment you said it. I knew it was a joke to to you. I you just didn't give me a chance to acknowledge it in a joking way. But that yeah. is so so much so um, uh, a phrase of uh, or characterization that yeah. is lauded upon me when I yeah. grab a microphone, when I show up at yeah. an event, uh, you know, it is without doubt that yeah. there are people sitting in the yeah. room that will say, man, he's an angry black man. Yeah. And then what I always ask them, if they're bold <laughs> enough to say it in front of me, or if someone is bold enough to share with me that it was said, then I say to them, have you ever said that he's an angry white man? Yeah. Have you ever said, you know, let's talk about white on white crime? Like, no matter what we're talking yeah. about, we have no problem saying the phrase black on black crime and then attaching it to Chicago. No matter where right. they are in the world, you know, people have been socialized to think black people, crime, Chicago in that order, in yeah. that order. And so then I say, all right, well, show me white people, crime and give me a city. Can't do it. Yeah can't do it. So I knew you were joking, Robert. I yeah. knew you were. But let me explain why I made the joke because um, of course, you know, you're making the point that that preju anybody can be prejudiced. You know, I don't like people who are Dallas Cowboy football fans or whatever it might be. That's right. I mean, people, you know, people have all sorts of crazy ideas about what they like and don't like in other human beings. But when we talk about racism, we're talking about the ability to to use a a, a power that is accorded to those of us who are white to actually affect the outcomes of other people's lives. And as you point out, you know, you, if, if you were a manager in a company, you might be able to deny some white person a job that you don't like. But there's a couple of things. One is that how often does that really happen? Uh, in my experience, I have not been on the receiving end of a lot of antipathy from 
from black and non-white people more generally. Uh, but what happens is that any critique of the system, like one you're making, as you point out, gets read as anger. And, and so why do we take a critique of a system of which we're a part as white people as an expression of anger as opposed to an analysis, which is what it is, right? And the second point I want to I add is if you were angry, Torin, and I suspect sometimes you are angry, well, big surprise if there is a system that, you know, puts you in a position uh, of vulnerability and risk, wouldn't somebody get angry at that a lot? Uh, you know, of course people are angry and anger is not a, an irrational response to injustice. In fact, you know, all the political organizers of the world will tell you anger is an important political emotion that when you can identify correctly the source of your own oppression, anger at it is a perfectly justifiable response. So I think those of us who are white have to get past those some of these reflexes where we want to make ourselves, in a sense, if not the victim, at least um, people that you have to have some sympathy for. I mean, I'm again, I'm 60 years old, and I've been around all sorts of people all my life. And not every person I've met who is non-white has been nice to me. Some of them have been unpleasant. Uh, sometimes they've made comments I thought were stupid. I mean, you know, the world is what it is. It's full of a lot of people. But in terms of a system uh, in which I have to routinely endure those kind of things, the answer is no, of course I don't ever endure it. And if you're angry about the fact that you have to endure it, Torin, well, seems to me that anger is justified. So I think that seems like a pretty good place to wrap up, unless you have any more questions, well, Torin. Uh, again, if if you don't have one, Julie, let me just first and foremost say, uh, Dr. Robert Jensen, we absolutely appreciate your willingness to to join us and to have an honest and transparent conversation. And by all means, this is but one hour, but one hour of what I suspect Julie and I, as well as you, could have probably taken a quick break, grabbed a beverage and continued on for several mm -hmm. more hours. So we thank you tremendously. Here's my final question. Uh, racism has really been one of the more complex social dilemmas. And I think the three of us agree on that. What are your parting words for our listenership, a listenership that is uh, part and parcel professional from uh, a variety of different industries, geographies, academic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. We have listeners in a variety of other countries. I'm not saying that as if we have millions of listeners. That's not it. We want to be there. But we know we have a very, very different and diverse group of listeners. What are your closing comments for them? Because I want them to hit them right in the middle of their air canal. Well, my my thought as you were you were wrapping up was that denial rarely works to help solve a problem. If you've got a problem, denying it doesn't really get you anywhere. And so, if you're a, a, in the business world and you want to increase your productivity and profit margin, denying the existence of patterns of white supremacy in society and within your own company isn't going to help you. If you're in an educational institution and you really want students to thrive, denying patterns of white supremacy and institutionalized racism in your 
university isn't going to help you get there. If you just want to be a better person, denying your own place in that world isn't going to get you there. So uh, I think a lot of what we're talking about is just um, finally breaking free from the way we're trained to deny reality. And um, if one can break free of that, I think um, on whatever criteria you want to measure uh, your success in the world, you're going to be more successful. Uh, but there is a, a a process by which you have to to face yourself in the mirror, and that's never easy. Um, and it's not been easy for me. It continues to be difficult to tell the truth about myself. But that's that's what we're called to do. And I I will keep struggling and hopefully continue to make progress till the day I die. Dr. Robert Jensen, Emeritus Professor, School of Journalism at the University of Texas, uh, Austin. You can find him on Twitter at Jensen Robert W. That's J-E-N-S-E-N Robert and the letter W as in when we won in this conversation today. His most recent book is The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men, uh, I think that was through SpinFX Press. Dr. Robert Jensen, Torin Ellis says, thank you. I absolutely appreciate your contribution to Crazy and the King. Thank you very much. It was, it was an honor to be with you. Thank you. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Torin. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Crazy and the King podcast. I'm Julie Sowash, your co-host with Torn Ellis. Follow us on social media as Torn Ellis or Julie Sowash. And also follow our hashtag, Crazy and the King. This episode was produced by my gorgeous husband, Chad Sowash. And our music is by DJ Sells, straight out of Baltimore. You can find Crazy and the King wherever you find your podcasts. Please rate us. And if you like it, share it with a friend. We'll see you soon. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.